Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, the second chapter, verses 13 through 23. Hear now the word of God. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we uh, launch into the meat of today's sermon, as I said a moment ago, it is still Christmas. And so we continue in our worshiping life together as church to celebrate that Christ is born, that God is among us, that he is here. We continue to celebrate that God became flesh and the child Jesus lived among us. And this morning's scripture reading speaks to that. And we continue to see uh, part of, in Matthew's version, of Jesus' infancy, of what of his earliest years. And it's a part we don't usually think about because it is so horrible to imagine. And I think it's okay to acknowledge at the beginning of reading these verses that these terribly frightening, horrible events that we read about taking place in Nazareth. To set the context for just a little bit, you probably know the story, but just in case, in the verses before these, we see the wise men have come to receive Jesus. They are probably from Persia, but we know from the east, and they see a star that they've not seen before, and they follow the star, and it leads them to the area around Bethlehem. And they go to the palace of Herod, who we'll talk more about in a minute. But Herod was a puppet king of the Romans. The Romans had uh, were uh, conquered and occupied this area and set up Herod to, to be in charge, but he also answered to the Roman authorities. And so they go to Herod, who called himself king of the Jews, because they had a notion that this star would lead them to the king of the Jews. And so they say, where's so Herod? They say, the wise men show up and they go to Herod and they say, we're looking for the king of the Jews. Where will he be born? And Herod seems to say to himself, huh, they're not talking about me. And so he gathers his wise men and they tell him that the star was leading them to Bethlehem where it was prophesied that's where the king of the Jews would be born. So they go there. 
and they find Jesus. And they worship him. And they bring their gifts. And then they leave. I'm tipping my hand a little bit because next week we'll talk about the wise men some more. But they have this moment. They, they worship Jesus in Bethlehem. And Herod, before he sends them on their way to Bethlehem, he says, After you go and, and find the new king, I want you to come back and tell me where I can find him so that I can go worship him. That doesn't sound like Herod, does it? And it wasn't. Of course he didn't want to go worship Jesus. He wanted to go so he could destroy Jesus. So that he would not have a rival for his power. But the wise men receive a vision from God warning them not to go back to Herod's house as Herod had told them to do. And so they return home by a different route. And when Herod realizes what has happened, we have the account that I read about in these verses here. This horrible event where Herod orders a massacre of children in Bethlehem. Here, in amidst all this awfulness, Matthew, I think, is intentionally showing us a parallel between God's saving work in Jesus Christ and God's saving work among his people in the past. He's particularly calling to mind for us the events of the Exodus, the events that happened around Moses. Now, bear in mind that these things would have been, that the time of Moses and the Exodus would have been ancient to Jesus. They would have been very far removed. Jesus is ancient for us, and the time of Moses would have been just as ancient for Jesus. So what's really ancient for us is even ancient for him. But Matthew, nevertheless, I think is trying to connect some dots for us and show us that God is up to something in his saving work here. If we think about the accounts of the Exodus, just very briefly and broad strokes, the people of uh, the, 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 the Hebrews, the ancient Jews, were in the Promised Land and there was a famine. And so they went as refugees to Egypt where there was food. And they were, when they first got there, they were welcome guests. But as years passed, their status devolved to that of being slaves, and they were persecuted. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was so threatened because Hebrew slaves were having more children than Egyptians, and he was worried about there being an uprising, about there being an overthrow or something, because they were so persecuted. And so he issued a decree that all male Hebrew children should be killed at birth. This and other things as horrible happened to the Hebrew people. And so God called Moses, who was one of those children who should have been killed by Pharaoh's decree, but by God's intervention wasn't. And so God called Moses and sent Moses to be his mouthpiece to Pharaoh and demand that Pharaoh free God's people, the Hebrew people, the ancient Jews. And a series of plagues happened before Pharaoh finally relented. And we know the story. You've maybe seen the movie where the, the entire Hebrew nation just sort of en masse leave and they, they travel toward the promised land. They get as far as the Red Sea, but Pharaoh regrets his decision. And so he with his army pursues them and they're cornered against the Red Sea and the water parts and they travel across and begin a 40 year meandering journey to the promised land. But I think Matthew is intentionally wanting us to think about the Exodus. He's intentionally letting us the, 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 see the parallels, I'm sure, with children born under threat, the decree that children should be murdered 
as I say, something beyond horrible to imagine. The parallel that God is doing something among His people, that God is doing something, that God is working, that God is intervening, that somehow or another His saving work is going on in the midst of the awfulness. And make no mistake, Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus was under threat. He's connecting these dots that God is up to His saving work. But he wants us to connect the dots not only as this ancient act of salvation calling to mind God's present work of salvation in Jesus. He also wants us to understand just how threatened Jesus was. History has come to know the Herod that we read about here Herod as Herod the Great. But he was not Jewish. He was an Edomian. So it was a neighboring people, a related people, but he was not Jewish. When the Romans took this area, they made Herod king so they could control him. As I said, he styled himself king of the Jews. But as you might expect, the people who he wanted to be king over didn't particularly want him to be their king. And so there was a three-year fight against his rule. The Romans gave him a kingdom, but he had to take control of it. And because of that three years of war, he never quite felt secure. Throughout his reign, he maintained a private army. He had fortresses in key locations, including Jerusalem and Masada. He killed the descendants of the Hasmoneans, who were the last Jewish monarchs. Even though they were no threat to him, he had them murdered anyway, so as not to threaten his rule, so he would have no rival. When he suspected they were plotting against him, Herod had his own wife and one of his sons murdered. Before his death, as he lay ill, Herod ordered that all the political prisoners that were being held captive would be killed so no one would celebrate when he died. I suspect people celebrated anyway, wouldn't you, if you had a ruler like that? These are the sorts of things we read about and see in movies, but this was real. This is the man who was after Jesus, a desperate, a tyrant, an evil man. And so God sensing the threat, God knowing the threat that Jesus was under, set this vision, this dream to Joseph, telling Joseph to take the Holy Family, to take himself and Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt. And so we have this scene, in my mind, they're sort of leaving in the middle of the night. They're nervous with every passerby they meet on the road. And make no mistake, it wasn't just like getting on the interstate and driving to Egypt. The, the journey itself was hazardous. And I wish I had an answer for why God didn't warn the other citizens of Bethlehem. Matthew doesn't give us an answer. We do see, though... Joseph's certainty that Jesus is the Messiah and that he has an obligation to protect Jesus because Jesus had to be about the saving work of his people. And let's be clear, death came to Bethlehem because of Herod's evil, not because of God's plan. Awful things happened then as awful things happen now because the world is corrupted by sin. The world is broken by human sin. And the terrible things that happen, happen because of human brokenness and the way we let sin control our lives. It's not part of God's plan. What it does tell us, though, is that Jesus would face opposition. That Jesus 
would face threat, that his life started under the threat of death itself, that Jesus came into the world at the intersection of life and death. And it cannot help but make us see a foreshadowing of what was to come, that through his death, Jesus would bring life. We cannot help but read these words and not have in our minds the cross, that Jesus, even as an infant, was born under threat of death. And it reminds us that that is ultimately what awaited him as he journeyed to the cross. You know, we oftentimes, I'm sure Joseph did this too and Mary did this too, we want to draw a straight line between where we are and where we want God to bring us or where we think God is going to bring us. I imagine Mary and Joseph saying, all right, this child's the Messiah. We have God's protection. Everything's going to work out. And now Herod's coming for us? How can God let his son come under this kind of threat? How might God be in all this? I wonder Joseph and Mary must have asked themselves and one another. And God did have his hand on Jesus' life. And it reminds us that even in the life of Jesus from the beginning, the route to where God was going to bring Jesus, where God's plan was to bring Jesus all along, might not have been a straight path. It might not have been the most direct route, and it certainly wasn't the one Mary or Joseph or any of the rest of us might have guessed. It reminds us that the path to where God is bringing us, the destination might be sure, but the the route might be not always so certain that we might face unexpected detours. And we bear in mind, I think, that life does bring us detours. I need to lighten things up a little bit here. I want to tell you a story. Those of you who've been involved in connectional kind of stuff at the district or conference level in the United Methodist Church know that any time South Carolina United Methodists decide to do anything, we do it in Columbia which is convenient if you're already in Columbia. And that's one of the great things about Florence is I'm much more within striking distance of Columbia here than I've been anywhere else I've served. And um, some years ago, I had a meeting in Columbia. My staff at at a former church used to joke with me and said, when are you going to Columbia this week? But I was coming back from a meeting in Columbia, driving back to Charleston, and just about the time I was about to hit the main Orangeburg exit on I-26, traffic was just stopped. I mean, looks like cars were parked on I-26. There was nothing was moving. And I had I was coming up on it in just enough time that I was able to jump off the exit at, at Orangeburg and, and park and sort of get my, my GPS out and figure out the best way to get home. And, and I figured 26 was not it. I saw that there was a wreck ahead, that the interstate was completely closed going toward Charleston, completely closed, and didn't know when it would open. And I said to myself, well, I know people drove from Columbia to Charleston before I-26 was built, so let's figure out how they did it. And I kind of got a a route figured out, and I started driving cross-country, and uh, it was a pretty drive, by the way. Never had been this way before, just kind of figuring it out as I go. And I realized that I'm in the... I'm right outside of St. Matthews, a little town, St. Matthews, South Carolina. That's where my grandfather grew up. And uh, I, he, my, his, as an adult, he had left and, and not returned back to the farm. And so he was, when 
actually died before I was born, but even before I was born. He never, as an adult, lived in St. Matthew's. But I knew that's where he was from, and I was spent summer sitting in cousins' living rooms, that sort of thing. But I knew I was in the area. And as I'm driving down the, the highway at a rate of speed that doesn't lend itself to reading signs very quickly, I don't know why, it just jumped out at me. As I passed a road sign, the road sign had my mother's maiden name on it. Now, to be clear, it's other people's last name, too. And from that part of the country, it's not that unusual a last name. But it is an unusual last name for everywhere else. So I turned around, and there it was, a sign for Murph's Mill Road. And I knew that my grandfather's family had a grist mill somewhere around there. And I'm putting two and two together. I'm like, I'm about to go discover the family estate. So I figured I was already late, so why not wander? So I turn and I drive up and down the road trying to find a, there was no old mill. I didn't even see a place where it looked like an old grist mill could have been. Um, no, no mill pond, nothing. And so I, I decided I'd go a little further and drive all the way to the road, ended, dead ended into another little state road. And there, at that intersection, was an old white country church. And I read the name of the church and I realized, well, this is the church I've heard about in the stories. I think I came to a funeral here when I was little. This, is, this was the church where my grandfather was born and raised. Well, he wasn't born in the church, but he was raised at the church. It's where he was baptized. It's where my great-grandparents were married. So many events in my life, family's life, rather, happened at this place. I had an ancestor who, in the context of that congregation, was ordained a, a Methodist minister by none other than Francis Asbury, the first American Methodist bishop. That doesn't make me special, by the way. I'm just saying all that is as I see this church, I, I, I look at it and I'm thinking all the, the things that happened in this place. All just kind of floods over you that all kind of work together to make me who I am. Because one generation after generation being formed in the faith all the way down to my mother, because it was her family who formed me in the faith. And so I, I park and I get out and I do what you do at a country church. Uh, I get out and I start walking around the cemetery and I'm looking at names and I find my two great-grandparents. I find a couple of legendary figures in my church's family. I, I, I find all these people. There's only like two names, last names, on any of the gravestones. So I figure I'm related to them all one way or the other. I, I did learn, though, that I have a, uh, somebody related to a woman named Euphonia. If you ever have a daughter, you should name her Euphonia. <laughs> I had a wonderful time stumbling around that old cemetery. And it's like a lot of country churches. The cemetery is a whole lot bigger than the church. Stumbling around and just kind of having a moment. And it was a holy moment for me. But it was a detour moment. My plan was to get on I-26 in Columbia and not to stop until I got home. Take it all the way to Charleston. But that's not what happened. Life gave me a detour. And I took the detour and I was... As I was first on this detour, I was put out because it was taking me somewhere I didn't want to be. It was going to take me longer to get where I needed to be. Yet, on the detour was a gift. To me, that kind of gets at this idea that life gives us detours, that we might be able to draw a straight line from where we are and what we think ought to be to exactly where we want to go and what we want God to want for us. We might be able to draw a straight line to where we know God will ultimately bring us. But the path from one point to the other might not be a straight line. 
God might give us detours. The destination might be assured, but the path to the destination might require some unexpected side trips. Mary and Joseph knew exactly what Jesus ought to be when they were told he was the Messiah, but that's not the Messiah he was born to be. Jesus' ministry, Jesus' life led to the cross, to the empty tomb, to the right hand of the Father in heaven, to the place he's prepared there for you and for me. Jesus' path, Jesus' life had detours. Our life will have detours. And so the message I want us to take away from this is here at the very beginning of Jesus' life, we see whatever, even if the route's not the one we want or expect or like, Jesus is in the business of saving people. God is in the business of saving people. That through Jesus, he would bring his salvation. That Jesus would emerge from Egypt to bring God's salvation to the whole world. And friends, as we continue to celebrate Christmas, that's what we celebrate. That Christ, who is with us, brings us to that salvation. Will you pray with me? Eternal God, we praise you for you called us and saved us by your power. And so we come before you this day with joy. In the mystery of a baby's birth in a stable, you've revealed your great love and your compassion. You've shown us the power of your works. You've fulfilled your covenant. Lord, through Jesus, you freed us from death. You broke the power of death over us. And so enable and empower us now to experience anew the power of your Holy Spirit to help us proclaim your message. As you rescued Joseph and Mary and Jesus from death under Herod's hand, give us the strength rescue others from the things that would enslave and destroy them. Lord, you came to help your people. And so we pray today, especially for those who are suffering in body and mind or in spirit, relieve them from pain, restore their hope. Give them and us a spirit to praise you. Lord, we pray all of this in the name of your Son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.